0: Amen. Amen. The words of those songs that we sang this morning are so true and prepare our hearts for continuing in our study this morning on our series, The Love of God. And I shared with you last week that preaching through Ephesians chapter 3 here in Cornerstone a few years ago really brought to my attention what I would call an area of deficiency in my life. And I expect is often a deficiency in the life of most believers because the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 this. He says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, and here's what is the focus of Paul's prayer, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is an interesting text because Paul's acknowledging that the love of God is beyond our comprehension. But his prayer for the Ephesians, I think it should be the prayer for all believers, and for this reality to be true in each of our own lives, is that we would grow to comprehend the love of Christ. We should not be content with a small or lesser understanding of the love of God. And Paul makes this observation as he closes out this prayer. He says, listen, to know the love of Christ would surpass his knowledge. He wants us to grow in that so that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What he's saying is, if we don't comprehend the love of Christ, we can't demonstrate the love of Christ. That's what he means, the shorthand there, this fullness of God in us is saying the maturation of us spiritually so that we actually live and love like God loves. And if you don't comprehend his love, how can you possibly know how to demonstrate that? And so Paul wants the believer to grow in their understanding of God's love, not just that the believer will benefit, but that the testimony of believers before one another and before the lost will put on display this marvelous, awesome, amazing, incomprehensible love of God. Do you want to live that way? Do you want to put on display the love of God in your life? then you, like I, have the responsibility to devote ourselves to growing in our understanding of the love of God, not to be discouraged by the reality that's incomprehensible because we have the revelation of God's Word. We have the revelation uh, through the Spirit that bears testimony in our own hearts and grants us understanding. We have been given the resources of God Himself to aid us in maturing and understanding the love of God. And because his love is perfect and it's infinite, in this life we will never comprehend it. But that eternal love is a love that we will enjoy and we will grow in understanding for all of eternity. This is the trajectory of your life as a believer. This is the trajectory of my life. This is why we are characterized by those who have hope. It's anchored in a growing, eternal love of God. Paul says the same things in Philippians chapter 1, as he commends the Philippians for their faithfulness and love and ministry and service. And he says this, and this I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He's restating the same principle that he prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge And the knowledge there is a knowledge of the love of Christ and to possess discernment about that. And here the purpose statement, he says in verse 10, the outcomes is so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What he's saying here to the Philippians is the more you understand the knowledge an increasing knowledge of the love of Christ, it will have its effect in your life that you live a more excellent life. You live a righteous life. You live a life that is consistent with the heart and character of Christ. And this brings him glory. You know, we throw the phrase around a lot in our lives. Uh, you know, our great, the greatest purpose of man or our responsibility in all life is to bring glory to God. And we leave it there, like it's some nebulous, undefined, generic principle. But the scriptures are very clear. The way that we bring glory to God is that we live lives that are consistent with his character and nature. If you will, we multiply his glory in the way that we portray him in our lives. So understanding the love of God has everything to do with fulfilling your call as a believer. And so we want to expand our understanding and we want to confront some false ideas that creep into our thinking about the love of God. Last week, I mentioned to you that we are bombarded from every front with definitions about what love is. Uh, The examples I used last week were from the 1980s, a good friend reminded me yesterday, uh, from pop culture uh, and being a child of the 80s. I remember being impacted listening to these songs, but growing as a believer going, wait, what I'm hearing doesn't equal the truth that I'm being taught in my study of Scripture. And yet these ideas pervade our culture, they pervade the media, they pervade technology. Everywhere we look, someone is offering us a false definition of love. And to illustrate this morning, I just went in, like you can, and I googled, what is love? And one of the very first hits I got was this video I want you to watch. So, Rusty, show this video. (laughs)
1: We have one question from the social media, the Facebook, (laughs) Amit Madan wants to know, in this materialistic age the real feeling of love is disappearing from our life. Most of the love we receive from others and express to others is superficial. How can we reinforce the real feeling of love in our own life and in others? Forget about others. If you, if you learn to be loving by your own nature, not because of somebody else or something else. I know the question is coming from Facebook. There's an enormous possibility. (laughs) You can even love those people who don't even exist. So I'm saying it's a tremendous possibility. So, (laughs) if you just become love, not love somebody, then you will know the nature of love. If you love somebody, it's a fickle happening because no human being will happen 100% the way you want them. Every human being on this planet is going to disappoint you, believe me. Not because they'll do something wrong because nobody can fulfill the unrealistic expectation you have of them. It's simply not possible. Have you been able to fulfill anybody's expectation, I'm asking you, entirely? Partially, but never entirely, isn't it? So nobody else will be able to do it. Unless you are still such a hopeless romantic, you are still waiting, that ideal person is going to come from somewhere. No, believe me, whoever comes, I want you to know, the ideal people whom you worship, when Krishna was there, his wives complained. <laughs> All right? <laughs> so there is no hope for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Please remember this. <laughs>
0: I trust you don't go for spiritual counsel to uh, the mystic. But what this illustrates is how Satan is so effective. You can take an observable reality, an unbeliever can do that, and what does this mystic say? No one's ever going to love you perfectly. But he started off with his conclusion. What was it? you got to become love, Okay. Well, he just said that's impossible to do. Nobody does that perfectly. And so this is the world's reasoning. It runs in circles, and it never gets to the source of what real love is or what true love uh, is or can be experienced. And this is the sad reality of the lost, is they never come to know the answer to that question. You and I have been given that answer, and that answer has been made clear to us in the Word. But sometimes, because of human experience and what takes place in our human relationships that are marred by sin, we give up on ever believing. The concept of love as revealed in Scripture can be known, it can be experienced, it can be demonstrated. But we have the ability through God's faithfulness and his work in our lives to transform us, to grow us, and to mature us. And so we have to go about the work of editing out all of our common experiences of the failure of love. We have to edit out all of the false teaching and lies that seek to come up with a rationale based on the disappointing experience of love in the human realm. And we have to anchor ourselves in the truth. We considered these six principles last week, what I titled, Realities of God's Love Every Believer Must Come to Comprehend. So let me remind you the ground we've covered. Number one, God's love is part of his essential nature. God is love. God is also holy, and God is forbearing, and he's eternal. And so his love is in equal measure to all of his attributes. But it is grounded in him, and as a result of that, The second reality is God's love is fundamentally based in the Trinity, meaning the Father, the Son, and the Spirit relate to one another in perfect love. There's a relational dynamic within the Trinity. And the demonstration of love, of course, is perfect within the perfect Godhead. And they enjoy the sweet fellowship of knowing each other in that perfect way. The third reality we consider is that God created man then to enjoy the fellowship of his love. He did not create man because he needed to be loved. God's not deficient in love. He dwells in perfect unity and love and fellowship with the Spirit. So therefore, his purpose in creating man wasn't to somehow derive more love from man. Just the opposite. It was a very selfless kind of love. He created man so that man could enjoy the experience of the fellowship that the God had enjoyed in perfect love. And that was true prior to the fall. The fourth reality then relates to the fall. God's love was rejected by man in exchange for a love of self. And this broke fellowship with God. And fifthly, we saw that a solution was provided. God sent his beloved son to reconcile sinners back into loving fellowship with the Creator. This is what the gospel does. It restores us back into fellowship with our loving God. And then sixthly, we saw God's character of love was revealed by the Son in human image. We saw that we were created in the image of God, meaning we had the capacity to reflect His love in the context of relationship. When we became self-lovers, those of us in human form then, because of imputed sin, no longer reflected the perfect, perfect loving nature of God. And so the perfect God took on the image of man. And he demonstrated in human form what love looks like. and provides for us the ultimate example. Well, let's continue on and we'll cover as many principles as we can this morning. I mentioned that as a result of teaching this text of Scripture a few years ago, I became interested in growing and studying this theme, benefited from many, many Puritans who have written devotionally on this topic. And uh, I wanted to serve you this morning, so I brought for you a bibliography of recommended resources. I've entitled it A Selective Bibliography of Devotional and Theological Readings on the Love of God. And there's a whole bunch there, and I've starred the ones that are particularly authored by Puritans. And if you want to join me in this journey and you would like to begin to, to read devotionally and theologically on this topic, hopefully this bibliography will give you a direction to begin in. Um, there's copies of this. There's a stack on the back table for those who are leaving out that back door, and there's a stack over uh, by the welcome table here. So you can get your hands on that. And uh, if for some reason you can't get a copy of it, come see me, and I'll, I'll make sure you do get one by way of email. And so we want to continue our study then on the realities of God's love. Every believer must come to comprehend. And in order of these six principles, the seventh reality that we want to look at this morning, is God's love is not like man's love. Therefore, it cannot be understood apart from revelation of Christ and his word. We don't look to another person to explain to us what God's perfect love is. Yes, we should expect to see evidence of that in fellow believers. But ultimately, we want to make sure that we are rooted and grounded in the divine revelation of God's love. And this must be our guiding authority on the subject. Listen to John 15, verses 9 through 17. John writes, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is Christ speaking. Therefore, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then he concludes by saying, These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, the word command bothers us. Okay? But what you need to understand Christ is saying here is there is a law. That's the law of love. Okay? And I've revealed this law to you. And as we said earlier, he's going to demonstrate that to mankind. And so he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And now I want you to abide in my love and thus keep my commandments. Christ was asked the question by the Pharisees, answered in Matthew chapter 22, what's the greatest commandment? Instead of going and rehearsing a long list of rules and laws from the Old Testament. He summarizes all the law in this way. We are to what? Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, our total being, whole devotion to him, and then to demonstrate that love towards our neighbor. The principle is this. The more you come to understand the law of love that's rooted in the character of God and demonstrated by Christ, This becomes your standard. Not human efforts to define love, to demonstrate love. It's the love of God demonstrated both through Christ and then in his word. And so we have an objective standard. Now, again, this is important because we have to ask ourselves what really has informed our thinking and understanding of love. And we're grateful that God's given us his divine revelation that is the authority on the issue. So we have something to measure our understanding of love against. We're not just left to derive or consider or fabricate or guess. It's very clear. And so God's love is not like man's love. So it cannot be understood apart from the revelation of Christ and his word. Reality number eight is God's love is effectual, E-F-F-E-C-T-U-A-L, effectual. And it results in an effectual grace and eternal fellowship. It's not a word you probably use too often, but theologians have used this word effectual often. And they refer to God's call to the gospel as both being a general call and an effectual call. And effectual, the word effectual means it, was, it will be certain by way of a guaranteed outcome. If this is true, this is the assured outcome. It will take full effect. And that's how we use the word effectual. So God's love is effectual, resulting in effectual grace and eternal fellowship. Listen to what John writes in 1 John four seventeen. By this is love perfected or completed with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, Our pastor, John MacArthur, helps us in considering what's being said here by the apostle. He says the love of God in its broadest sense is rejected by mankind. We talked about that last week. In fact, it is universally rejected, with the exception of those who believe. And those who believe, believe because there's another kind of love which penetrates this universal rejection and saves souls in spite of their rejection. To understand this is very important in understanding the love of God. What we're dealing with is this theological principle. There's a general calling, meaning that the gospel is proclaimed in this world. The invitation is extended. But it's only those who God has chosen his elect, who are going to respond to that and have that gospel message take its full effect in their lives. So there's a general invitation to the gospel, and then there is the accomplishing of the gospel, the application of God's loving work on our behalf. Pastor John continues, he says, God in sovereign love and unique love penetrates through that universal rejection, that general rejection, to forgive and save some sinners in spite of their rejection. It's not because they reject less than others. It's not because they deserve salvation more than others. But purely on the basis of his own will and his own desire and his own sovereign love, he determines to penetrate that universal rejection and rescue those upon whom he decides to set his saving love. This is another kind of love. This is a different kind kind of love. It's different in degree, and it's different in extent. This is the love that he set upon you and I, if we are children of God. And so God's love takes full effect in our life. John, the apostle again, back in his gospel in John 13, verse 1, takes us to that occasion of a few days before Christ's crucifixion. And we read in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, and listen to this, to the end. He loved them to the end. It was a love that was placed on them, yes, in present time, but it was a love that was going to extend and be completed To the very end. And so our pastor writes this. He says, What kind of love is it with which God loves his own? It is this kind. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them, I tell us. What does that mean? I tell us means to the end. What does that mean? John answers completely. We would say in the vernacular, to the max. Perfectly, fully, comprehensively. Or we might say in King James English, he loved them to the uttermost. The point is he loved them to the absolute end of his capacity to love, which what? Has no end. This is the effectual love of God. And it will result in eternal fellowship with God. Aren't you thankful? It's a sure thing. It's a done deal. It's a completed work. Why is this important to understand? Because some of us still see love through a human lens, and we experience and understand it as conditional. But God's love is not conditional. It's a covenant love. And once that covenant has been made, it will never be breached. It will never be broken, and you can rest in it. Reality number nine, God's love is better comprehended when man best comprehends his true sinfulness. God's love is better comprehended when man best comprehends his true sinfulness. Now, Paul helps us here because he talks about the giving of the law and that it had a purpose. And he writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now listen, therefore the law has become our tutor. What's a tutor? It's a teacher, an instructor, it's a guide. And so Paul writes there, the law has become our tutor, which leads us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. What does the law do? It exposes the depth of our sin our inadequacies, inadequacies, our inabilities to meet God's holy standard of perfect love, holiness, obedience. And when we consider the law, it exposes for us our inability to meet God's perfect standard. It exposes our sinfulness, correct? And as we understand our sinfulness... It provides for us the clearest contrast for the perfection of God's love. John Bunyan, in his little book, All Loves Excelling, says this, Now if thee wouldst know the badness of thyself. That's a fancy way of saying Now if thee wouldst know the badness of thyself, begin in the first place to study the law, then thy heart, and so thy life. What's he saying? Look to the law then look at the condition of your heart, and then look at the outworking of your heart in affections and actions and behavior. He continues, he says, "'Know thyself, what a vile, horrible, abominable sinner thou art. For thou canst know the love of Christ before thou knowest the badness of thy nature. But he that sees most of what an abominable wretch he is, he is like to see the most of what is the love of Christ.'" Paul says it simply this way in Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What did we hear, hear earlier? Greater love hath no one than he would lay down his life for his friends. So the demonstration of the greatest act of love on our behalf was while we were yet sinners, when there was nothing good about us, there was nothing that we could offer. This is the starting point of coming to faith in Christ and salvation, isn't it? We must recognize our total unworthiness. And then we look to one thing. It's the perfection of Christ's love demonstrated on our behalf. Do you remember that first moment when you understood that? You came with such a gratitude that Christ loved you, that he would give his life for you and provide a means for the forgiveness of sins that you might be recognize or reconcile to God himself. There was a depth of comprehension of your sinfulness that made you grateful and acknowledging this work of love towards you. The problem is sometimes we treat that truth as just a past reality. And we fall back into a pattern of thinking somehow we can earn or merit more of God's love We have to correct that thinking. There's nothing we can do to earn or merit more of God's love. It's lavished on us at the depth of our depravity. Paul knows this. He says in Romans 7, verse 24, O wretched man that I am. O wretched man that I am. Remember who Paul was? He was that one who was an expert in the law, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And then he became the one who was the messenger of Christ, who was the new covenant, who fully satisfied the law. That was the message that he proclaimed. He understood the depth of sin as an expert in the law. He also understood the depth of Christ's love. And he kept it before him and exposed the depth of his own sin. Let me put it this way practically for us. A small view of sin results in a small view of God's love. A view of the greatness of our sinfulness results in a richer, deeper view of God's love. You begin to think more highly of yourself, that you're more worthy, you diminish the extent of God's love. We must live in light of our unworthiness, our brokenness, not in despair at all. Our hope is in Christ. So we don't put our hope in ourselves and our abilities and what we can accomplish. This truth about the reality of sin, we see all throughout Scripture. One example is Isaiah 56, verse 6. Isaiah, looking upon the sin of the Israelites, listen to what he writes. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. What's the danger we fall into as believers? As we grow in obedience and and faith and sanctification, we actually begin to think more highly of ourselves, and we begin to think more lowly about the extent of God's love. By the way of practical application, as we think about this, I want to encourage you, when you sin, don't then try to prove to God that you are less sinful. Receive his forgiveness for what it is. It's undeserved. And welcome that and praise him for that. Often, though, what we do is we try to win back God's love by showing him that we're more despairing over our sin, and we're going to work harder, and we're going to pray harder to overcome, and we punish ourselves, and sometimes we even distance ourselves from God because we say we're unworthy, and we want to show him that we understand that. Yes, we must pursue genuine repentance, but never fail to recognize that the more aware you are of your sinfulness, the more you can and must recognize that God love is even greater. So when you sin, let it be the occasion that you contemplate the depth of God's love and praise him for it and rest in it. And let that become your heart and motivation to obey, not to try to convince God that you deserve his forgiveness for what you've done. We didn't start our Christian walk that way. We must not continue our Christian walk in that way. Reality number 10. God's love, when misunderstood, results in false gospels and man-centered, merit-based religion. God's love, when understood, results in false gospels and man-centered, merit-based religion. This is why we can't preach an easy believism. Jesus loves you. doesn't want you to go to hell. Just pray the prayer. We must preach the law. And we must help people recognize that they fall short of the law. And it's only by his grace that we can come to him. We have to see that there's no ability on our part to earn or merit any measure of God's love. And to the extent we take credit for our righteousness, what do we do? We rob God of the glory that he alone deserves. That's the beauty of this truth of God's love and our inability to merit his forgiveness and grace. He gets the glory. Sometimes we preach such a simplistic gospel because we're afraid to what? To offend people. We want to put everything on the lowest shelf so they can just kind of come in without being offended. And this is a great mistake because it leaves the lost individual thinking they are worthy of God's love. And therefore, we leave them with a lessened understanding of the magnitude of His love for them. Again, small view of love, or small view of sin, small view of God's love. And so we have to be thoughtful when we preach the gospel. By the way, we don't need to be offensive in our presentation of the gospel. The truth will offend, and that offense is essential to lead to conviction and faith. If somebody's not offended, they don't understand the gospel. Have you benefited them by making it easier for them to just pray a prayer and claim to be a follower of Christ? No, you have not truly served them. Think about Christ's bold confrontation with the Pharisees. We see this in Matthew chapter 23, in verses 27 through 28. These were the most pietistic, right, religious people. They built an entire system on this principle that somehow they could merit God's love. Christ says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, is what he pronounces them. For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He draws the same comparison in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, where he begins to look at a Pharisee and the publican, right? One is the religious elite. The other is the despised sinner. And Christ specifically in verses 1 through 18 gives three examples of the contrast between one who understands the love of God and one who thinks he can merit the love of God. He uses these three examples. He says of the Pharisee, when he goes to give to the needy, he does it publicly. But the publican, the sinner who understands the love of God, He's not seeking man's acclaim. He's not seeking any kind of credit for what he's doing. And so he gives privately. Or even the right hand doesn't know what the left hand does. Speaking of of you do it in secret, humbly. You're not looking for anything. You're giving out of an understanding of how God has loved you. He talks about when they pray, one prays publicly, right? And one prays in his closet, privately, in brokenness. He says, when, when they fast, puts on a display, and the other fast in secret. He's drawing a contrast between the true believer and the one who thinks that he can come to faith through his own merit and efforts. He goes on in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 to talk about these distinctions. He says there's two paths. There's a broad path, and everybody on the broad path are those who are attempting to enter heaven by what? Their own religious efforts. Then he goes on to say there are two trees. And the bad tree, or the tree that produces bad fruit, is those who say to Christ, look at what we did in your name. And then he uses this example, there's two houses. One built on the rock of Christ, and one built on the sand. And he says of the one that's built on the foundation of sand, this will not stand in the judgment. And then Christ explains that there will be those who stand before the judgment, who profess Christ, but he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And when you think about the world's religious systems, where you talk to the person on the street who's a humanist, their answer to how to get to heaven or to know God is always going to come back to some merit-based, works-oriented solution. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24, we read this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Reality number 11. And I love this. This has been one of the most helpful and yet convicting realities in my own life. Reality number 11, God's love is a pursuing, initiating love. God's love is a pursuing, initiating love. It moves towards us. And it's interesting, the world's religions represent man as on a quest or seeking after God. Don't we hear that all the time? Matter of fact, there's a whole movement in the evangelical church in the last 20 years called the seeker-sensitive movement. It borrows that language, this idea that that somehow man is seeking after God. But this is not consistent with the testimony of Scripture. Instead, we see that God is the initiator, and man is the one who hides himself from God. 1 John 4, verse 18, we saw last week. We love him because... He first loved us. Who's the initiator? God. John goes on, not he loves us because we loved him. So we've got to get this right. This is critical. And when we look at the account of the fall, and understand that the fall, because of self-love, violated and broke broke fellowship with God, we need to consider what the response of God was and the response of man was. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, in the account of the fall, verses 1 through 6, we see immediately in verse 7, and we read, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the breeze of the day, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, Where are you? I heard your voice in the garden, he replied, the man, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And so we ask this question, who pursued who? See, unregenerate man is not a seeker after God until God has already sought him. This is consistent with what John says in chapter 3 that wonderful text John 3:16 that precedes it but we come to verse 19 it says this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed that's exactly what we saw in Genesis chapter 3 they hid themselves their eyes were open they understood their sinfulness but did they run to God and plead with him for his mercy no They hid themselves, and it was God who moved towards them. He initiated the relationship. And this is what God does in bringing those of us to faith. He begins the work first in us. And this is consistent with what we see throughout the Scriptures, but particularly in the life of Christ. We read this in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. Christ models this in human form again, divine love. He takes the initiative. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And then we see this illustrated again earlier in Luke chapter 15 in these ways. And there's these wonderful parables that are pointing to this greater spiritual truth. We see in chapter 15, verse 4, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? This is that loving, good shepherd who initiates the shepherd. Does a sheep have the ability to find his way home? No. Using another example in verse 8, he says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And on, on and on we could go, but when you understand the doctrine of salvation, you begin to look carefully at who originates the work of redemption. It's God who what? Regenerates the heart. It's God who convicts. It's God who grants faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Yes, there might be an external expression of man seeking after God, but if he's genuinely seeking after God, the true God, he's doing that only because God has already initiated that work towards them. And again, rightly deserves the credit. Let's continue. Reality number 12. God's love guarantees you can have assurance of salvation. We've already said it's effectual. It's going to be accomplished. But do you believe that? Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then listen to this, verse 24. For in this hope... We were saved. See, that hope isn't just a wish. Genuine hope and faith is anchored in the truth and the promise and the person of God. And this groaning, why do we groan? Because we're awaiting the full realization of the effect of the gospel in rescuing us from this world and taking us into the presence of God. Our groaning leads to our hoping, and our hoping is evidence of an assurance and confidence that we were saved. Paul goes on to make the point in helping us understand that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's a sure thing. We read this in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's impossible. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What's he saying here? Listen, if God began the work of salvation, he's going to complete the work of salvation. Oh yeah, people will accuse you of being imperfect, of being sinful, and they're right. We're not complete yet. But don't let that cause you to doubt. Look back to Christ. If he is who he says he is, it's his power who's going to complete this work. It's not yours. So don't let your struggle with sin become cause for doubting the assurance of your salvation. When there's a genuineness, a genuineness to your growing affection for Christ and your dependence upon Him. If you put your confidence in your own ability, of course that's going to lead to doubt. Put your confidence in Christ. Now Paul goes on, and this is rich. He says, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' Verse 35. "'Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword?' As it is written, for your sakes, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than, what's the word? Conquerors. We are victors. And it's a promised victory. We are more than conquerors, and then note the context, through him who loved us. Where's his confidence based? In the love of Christ. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, and amen, and amen. He knows you're a sinner. That's why he saved you. Okay? Don't put your confidence in you and your performance. Put your confidence in the completed work of Christ. He's revealed that to you. And therefore, nothing is going to separate you from the love of Christ. All right, reality number 13. I'm sorry, yeah, 13. We're moving. Okay. God's love is the motive for obedience. Now, this is important too. We've alluded to it, but let's just be explicit here. God's love is the motive for our obedience. And I just put in parentheses here, it's not duty that should compel us to obey him but delight, but delight. John in 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, right? There's no fruit being born in our lives consistent with godly love. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Or complete. See, it's not because we're trying to earn or merit his affection or meet his standard. It's because his love is understood by us, and it begins to bear a change in affections and actions in our life. Here, John makes the same argument, which understanding the love of God results in the believer being drawn into an intimate, affectionate relationship with God which in turn produces the fruit of God's love, the very nature of his likeness being shown to others. But there is an even more dangerous reality because many of us have failed to understand grace and believe obedience and ministry then is a means to maintain or win God's love. We fall into this pattern of duty that produces guilt, that leads to despair. And doubt. In many ways, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, don't we? And in doing so, we remind ourselves that we, can, we cannot earn or merit God's favor, that his grace is abundant towards us, and it corrects a false understanding that somehow we can work harder to gain more of his favor. And when you don't understand God's love, you're left to serve God in order to win his affections. See, there's a fear-love continuum that measures our spiritual maturity. Think about just uh, a young child who's only concerned with their own selves. And their fear of consequences, which is often in the form of discipline from a parent, must be used to govern their behavior. Isn't that true? We find ourselves threatening our children, don't we, a lot? If you don't stop doing that, if you continue to do that, this is going to be the consequence. Why? Because they're immature. Immature. And they're so self-loving, so self-focused that the fear of the consequence is what becomes the motivation for them in their immaturity. But as the child matures to understand their parents' love for them, and even their instructions are for their benefit, they begin to respond less to fear of consequences and discipline and choose to obey out of a love and respect for their parents. Ultimately, discipline should cease to be a motivation for doing what is right because the child grows to obey because they learn not only how much their parents love them, but that their parents' standards are for their best interest. And so it is with God. This is the growing understanding of love in the believer's life, and it breaks through the fear fear discipline, duty, legalism paradigm. If you're just still living your Christian life after 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and your primary motivation is just fear of the consequences of God's discipline in your life, you're falling far short of maturing in your understanding of God's love for you that frees you from that, like a young child, to begin to know God and motivate your obedience Out of an affection for him and an understanding that what he's commanded us to do is in our best interest. If we only have a merit-based understanding of love, then we extend this to others as well. And this is a real practical application. Begins first in our own life of freeing ourselves from that understanding as we grow. But also, we can be guilty of tempting others to think the same way. If we behave this way, that everything is based on merit then we create that expectation for everybody else. To our friends, to our children, to our fellow workers, to those in authority around us, we play a game of keeping accounts. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, love does not keep accounts. This only creates distance in relationships, just as it does between us and God. if I must always earn your favor or your appreciation or your approval, then I'm a slave to that standard. And for those of us in the Christian realm, we become slaves to the law. And often this just produces people who are tired, they're fearful in the context of relationship, both with God and with people, because they know they never measure up. So don't be guilty of it in your own thinking about God, and don't be a source of temptation to others. Let them experience God's love and grace through you. But if you're the one that's always reminding them of their failures, always reminding them they're not good enough, always reminding them that you know, your forgiveness has to come based on this, 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 and this, you're tempting them to then think that must be true of God as well. All right. Lastly, number 14, God's love is to be enjoyed and delighted in now. Now. We know it's coming in the present, but it must be true of us now. One of the most profound ways I think this is evidence in our lives is the amount of time we each spend in seeking to obey God, but really finding no time to pursue him. We talk about God a lot. We do a lot of Christian activities, a lot of ministry. But when we consider how much time we actually spend in his presence, it begins to expose to us what we really think is what buys his affection. If we were to add up the hours we spend in ministry compared with the hours we spend in seeking him, we might be exposed that there's a challenge, a need for us to mature in understanding God's love. See, this inconsistency is often rooted in the fact that we disbelieve that God loves us enough to delight in us, that he really does love us. When we think about this, how can we claim that God loves us enough to save us? That great truth that we cling to and and we profess, but he doesn't love us enough to know us, to delight in us, and to desire us? It leads to this very distant perspective on God. And therefore the idea of coming to him to rest in his presence to enjoy him to delight in him is a foreign concept to many of us. But it wasn't to the psalmist, listen to the psalmist. Psalm 37:4 David writes delight yourself in him and he will give you the desires of your heart. And David understood this principle. Trusting the grace of God pursuing him out of an understanding of his love resulted in a change in his desires that we become consistent with the very nature and character of God. And if we delight ourselves in God, we rest in his grace, we will come to discover that our heart longs to live according to his good standards. And his desires will become our desires. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 42.1. Can we say this is true of us? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Or in Psalm 73, verse 25. He writes, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And one more statement he makes in Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, if God loved us enough, to save us. He loves us enough to delight in us, and our greatest delight and joy can be found in Him. Well, there's much more the Scriptures have to say about the love of God, but I hope these realities that we've talked about today benefit you in thinking about the opportunity to grow in your comprehension of the love of Christ and its practical effects like we did last week, I we invite you to just bow your heads and take a moment for meditation and reflection and listen to this wonderful little song entitled, God Loves Us So.